Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four books at uh, the beginning of the second half of our Bibles that describe the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ. And we're going to read the opening section of one of them, John's Gospel. John was a companion of Jesus, one of his disciples. In the beginning was the Word, and uh, the Word is John's way of referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which is quite a complicated saying, uh, way of saying that uh, he made all things and there was nothing that he didn't make. Okay? In him was life, verse 4, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and of truth. And then turn back in your Bibles to the very first verse in the Bible on page 1. The very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding what that means. Our Father in heaven, please help us understand what these words mean at the beginning of the Bible and what they claim. And we pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, we begin uh, this morning a series of talks on the beginning of the Bible. I wonder if somebody might open the doors at the back. It is about 185 degrees hotter than the sun. Let's open some doors up. Thank you. There we go. That's better. Is that better? That's fine. Yeah. Good. Better speak quietly now. Now, we begin today a new series of talks on Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, the beginning of the Bible. And uh, across on the welcome desk, there's a term card that lists the different talks in the series so you know what's coming each week. And uh, also a little uh, postcard with God the Creator on the front and the titles on the back. And as ever, please listen online if you miss one and email me your comments and questions and uh, I'm glad to uh, receive 
them. I have had a couple of texts since uh, the first service finished, so there you go. Just don't text during it, then I get discouraged, you're on your phones. Now, in this introductory talk, our subject is God the Creator. Now, for those of you who are Christians here, by the end of this talk, I hope you will be encouraged as we think about God our Creator. I hope you will marvel and uh, bear a sense of deep thanksgiving for the fact that you believe that. If you are not a Christian, whatever that means for you, let me say first how glad I am that you're here, and uh, secondly, that I hope that you will find, as we all do, the subject of beginnings and origins to be of relevance. Now, if you are not a Christian, here's what I hope to achieve at the end of this talk. Not that you will be convinced even that God exists, let alone to believe in Him. What I want to try to do is convince you of the plausibility, at least, of a Christian view of the world and reality, and beyond that, of the attractiveness of a Christian view of the world and reality, that were it true, how good it would be, such that you might be open to investigate the evidence for Christianity further. Now, the opening sentences in a book are important. Here are some opening lines from literature. Some of you will be English literature students, so here we go. You can shout out the answer or just whisper maybe if that's easier. Here we go. Number one, all children except one grow up. Peter Pan. Some of you got that. Here's a more somber one. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Did you get that? 1984, George Orwell. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the John Treader, and one of my favorites. You know this? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Did you get that? Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. Now, the opening sentence in the Bible is striking and important. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ten words, ten words that express clearly a Christian understanding of the world and reality, a Christian view of the meaning of life and existence. And what I want to do this morning is explain what they mean and what they claim. And I've expressed that, and if you take the service sheet and open up to the middle, you'll see some headings. I've expressed that in terms of three claims. This is what uh, the Bible claims. Now, you may not believe this, but this is what the Bible claims for our consideration. One, God alone is eternal. Two, God alone is creator. And thirdly, God alone is sovereign. And I've added on a conclusion that we'll come to later. So let's take each in turn. First, God alone is eternal. And here I'm focusing on the beginning of the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God alone is eternal. That's the claim. And uh, we're on the subject here of ultimate or fundamental reality. And put at its simplest, the claim of the Bible is that there is a God. That's, it's at its simplest. Many hold the view, and uh, sincerely, 
that the cosmos or the universe is all that there is, ever was, and ever will be. Or, let me put it another way, that all there is, was, and will be is stuff or matter or material substance. There is no God, no spiritual realm, just matter. And that is a view that many hold. But the Bible has a very different view and claim. That there is a God, that the cosmos, the universe, stuff and matter is not all there is. There is a God. Moreover, the Bible claims that before anything else existed, God did. In other words, before the cosmos or universe or stuff or matter existed, God existed. In the beginning, God Moreover, the Bible claims that God has always existed. From eternity, God has always existed. There has, in other words, never been a time when God has not existed. There was a time when there was no matter, no stuff, but there was never a time when there was no God. In the beginning, God. God is, the Bible claims, eternal. The ultimate or fundamental reality. And the God of the Bible, the God that Christians believe in, is not a kind of subjective projection of our minds, or a God that exists in our feelings, emotions, or intuitions. The God of the Bible is real and personal and loving. Now, what do I mean that God is personal? Well, the Bible speaks of God in terms of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Not three gods, but one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, just have a glance at that, there is a specific reference to the Spirit. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I read a moment or two ago from John's Gospel, which is very similar to the beginning of Genesis. Here's a a verse from John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word is John's way of referring to Jesus, God the Son. And so the Bible's claim is that the eternal God, the ultimate or fundamental reality, is personal. And that is profound because it means that God, at the very heart of who he is, is relational and loving. So from the beginning, a personal, relational, loving God. And so when the Bible or Christians speak about the fact that God is love, as the Bible often speaks about God in that way, it is not talking about something that is mushy or sentimental in any way, but something that is fundamental and eternal and true to who God is. God is personal, God is loving, and there are many implications That flow from that, as we will consider in this series. For example, implications about what it means to be human, implications about the sanctity and value and dignity of human life, implications about the beginnings and endings to life. Let me just throw out a question at the beginning of this talk. Where did your and my ability to love come from? 
Where did you and my ability to have relationships come from? In the beginning, God. God alone is eternal. Now let me summarize some of the implications of this. And I'll do this for each of the three points. Four implications uh, arising from the fact that the Bible claims that God alone is eternal. Number one, if there is no eternal God, if ultimate reality, if all there is, is the cosmos, the universe, stuff, and matter, if that is all there is, then there is plausibly no meaning to our existence, or it's hard to find what that would be. And little hope in terms of answers to the biggest questions of life, the biggest of all being death. Now, it may be that you think that that is all there is, matter, stuff, and that there is no God. And that what we need to do as human beings is come to terms with that. But that is, nonetheless, a bleak and a frightening thing to come to terms with. Second implication. If second implication from the fact that the Bible claims that there is a God who alone is eternal, if there is a God who alone is eternal, then ultimate purpose and meaning to our existence is plausible. And there is hope in the face of death. Third implication, if there is an eternal God, if God is the ultimate reality, it causes us to question the assumption that the world revolves around us. It humbles us as humanity. The fundamental reality is not us human beings with our reason, our feelings, our intuitions, but God. And the fourth implication of the Bible's claim that the God of the Bible, the God that Christians believe in, is eternal. If this God of the Bible is real, then the eternal God is personal and loving and deeply interested in us as human beings. In the beginning, God, he alone is eternal. Second point, God alone is creator. And here I'm focusing on that one word in the middle of the verse. In the beginning, God, one word, created the heavens and the earth. Yesterday in our house, and uh, let me just encourage you again not to pass this on to my children who are not here and have gone home. Some, somebody always does when I tell you not to do that. Yesterday we had one of these you might remember when you were young, a bored Saturday morning day. What can I do? And uh, so uh, we suggested, and uh, surprise, surprise, that our children bought the idea that they would all make bread. So they did. And then we had to eat it, and it tasted like sawdust. <laughs> they made that bread out of something. The claim of the Bible is that God made all the stuff that makes up this world and us out of nothing. That is what created means. 
It means God made all the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, the universe, all the stuff we see around us, the earth we live in, our own bodies, out of nothing. God created it. And it didn't just happen by accident. Now, I want to suggest to us, and we'll return to this in this series, that the fundamental clash between worldviews, if you like, is not between creation and evolution. One of the things that I'm going to suggest to us in this series is that there is no intrinsic clash between creation and evolution in worldviews. The clash, rather, is between, on the one hand, creation, and on the other, accident. Now, one of the things that I'm at pains to do in this series is not speak much about uh, uh, subjects I don't know much about, like uh, science. But I've tried here to uh, be careful and true uh, to what I say. The theory of accident or accidentalism is a view, and uh, a widely held view, and a sincerely held view, and a carefully thought through view. The theory of accident or accidentalism is the view that everything in this world is the result of no creator or guiding hand or intelligent design. Let me express it another way. The theory of accident is the view that everything there is is the result of three things. The impersonal plus time plus chance. Or a a kind of coincidental collision or collocation of atoms, and then in time, impersonal scientific processes without any guiding hand that results in stuff as it is now. And so the theory of accident or accidentalism would encompass uh, the so-called, and there are many of them, Big Bang theories about how the universe came into being. So if you go to the museum on Chambers Street, and I encourage you to do that, it's a nice place to go, it's warm and free. You go to the uh, section on space and the cosmos, and there's a big screen, and there's a film, and what that film expresses is the theory of accident or accidentalism. Impersonal, scientific processes, plus time, plus chance. Here's an illustration for you, a bit of time out. Um, 17th century mathematician and philosopher, Sir Isaac Newton, who was a a wonderful scientist and a a committed Christian. And these two, of course, are absolutely compatible. uh, He made a mechanical replica of the solar system, and you can imagine what it looked like on his, his bench uh, he had a, a, a he had the sun at the end of a kind of little stick, and he had all the other planets arrayed in the right spherical space in the right distances uh, from the sun. And then he had the tiny uh, little Earth, and uh, there it was on his uh, uh, dining room table, or the equivalent in the 19th, 18th century. And his friend came along, and he said, "So the story goes, um, who made it?" And, uh, and Newton said, "Well, nobody made it; it just happened." And uh, Newton records in his diary how his friend became a little irascible at that point, and he said, what do you mean nobody made it? And of course, Newton's point is, well, well, if the existence of my machine or my model presupposed a maker, a creator, then even more so the earth and the perfectly ordered 
solar system. Now, let me uh, try to take the theory of accident, um, impersonal plus uh, time plus chance, to its logical conclusions, just with one or two facts, not many of them. Um, the sun, um, which we see less than we would like in our country, uh, but it's there today, sustaining all of life and giving us heat, is a huge ball of hot glowing gas, 50 million kilometers from the earth, 6,000 degrees hot, in the heart of the sun, 3,000 times 6,000 degrees hot. The vastness of the universe, 4.2 light years away, the nearest star. Number of stars, 10 to the power of 21. When you type into Google, interesting facts about fish. It's amazing how many hits you get. Here's one. The pine cone fish has luminous bacteria in its lower jaw that act as headlights, enabling them to find food in dark water. Relative to its body length, hummingbirds can travel faster than a fighter jet and hover with more elegance than a jump jet. Now look, take all these facts and equate them to impersonal plus time plus chance. Or uh, hummingbirds may be astonishing, but the human body is even more so. Your eye has a range of muscles called focusing muscles. They have moved over 50,000 times already this morning. The tiniest cell in a human body contains a DNA code which carries more information than the British Library. Accident says impersonal plus time plus chance. Now what of human personality? The theory of accidentalism would suggest that matter without mind produces language and logic. Or that matter without mind creates within us conscience and conviction about right and wrong. Or that human creativity, genius, giftedness, thirst for knowledge is the result. So you students are all here thirsting for knowledge. Let's hope that doesn't wear off in ten weeks. Is that appetite within you for knowledge the product of impersonal plus time plus chance? Or... And I hope you watched that wonderful rugby match yesterday, Japan versus South Africa. The pundits remark at the end of the game, that was pure genius. Impersonal plus time plus chance. Now, the Bible's view, the Christian worldview, is that everything I have described, the sun, the stars, the vastness of the universe, the pine cone fish, the hummingbird, the tiniest cell in your body, your conscience, your creativity, your brilliance with a rugby ball is the product not of the impersonal plus time plus chance, but of a creator God, of a divine mind. It is no accident that you and I exist you and I are the creative expressions of an eternal God. Let me go back to the question I threw out earlier. Where on earth does love come from? Where does your ability to love come from? Is love A, the impersonal, plus time, plus chance? 
Or is love the expression of a God that is personal and loving and that has imprinted his own self into what it means to be human? In the beginning, God created. God alone is creator. Now, let me draw out once again uh, four implications from the Bible's claim that God alone is creator. One, one, if there is no creator, God, and I'm not going to be in any way, and I'll guard against this emotive about saying any of this, let me just try and be as logical and as careful as I can. If there is no creator, God, then you and I sit here this morning at the mercy of a pitiless universe overwhelmed by the sheer immensity and coolness of it. You and I sit here in a universe that is as vast as it is from one end to the other that takes you 4,200 light years to get there. And you and I are just at the mercy of that. If there is no creator God, we are hardwired to survive or not. Love is merely an instinct for survival, and then one day we will die. And the wind will blow the dust away as it blows away the leaves. Two, if there is no creator God, there is no meaning to life, or it's very hard to find one. We play the game of life without purpose. We live and die without meaning, and there is certainly no everlasting life. We breathe, then we stop breathing. We live for a time, and then we die. Thirdly, if there, is, if there is a creator God, there is meaning and purpose to life, point to our existence, understanding of where we have come from, who we are, where we are going. Life makes sense. We live in a world God created, and our purpose is to live in his way and for his glory, and there is hope. There is hope in the face of death. Fourth implication, if there is a creator God, it means we are not alone in the universe. We exist because God wanted us to. We are loved. God created us out of love and care for us. We are not alone. Now, you might be listening and you're not a Christian and you are thinking this is too good to be true. Let me level with you and say that oftentimes as a Christian minister, when I speak about Christianity and what it offers and what it claims, I hear myself and I conclude often, this sounds too good to be true. But the next step, if we hear this and it sounds too good to be true, surely is to investigate the evidence that leads you to conclude that it is true or not, and do not hover at the line of, yes, it sounds wonderful, but it's too good to be true, therefore I stop and do not investigate. Keep coming along and listening. Take up an opportunity when someone asks you to read one of the gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at the evidence for Jesus Christ's life. God alone is creator, the Bible claims. Thirdly, God alone is sovereign. And here I'm on the end of the phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, the phrase, the heavens and the earth, is an all-encompassing phrase. It means he created everything. And there is no room in the Christian worldview or the Bible's claim for polytheism. In other words, lots of different gods playing all their lots of different parts in creation. God alone is sovereign in creation. And one of the reasons the author of Genesis wrote Genesis was over and against the view that lots of gods out there uh, created this creative masterpiece that is the world. Now, the clear implication of the fact that God is the uh, sovereign and God alone is sovereign is that he is the center of the universe and not me. There's a a phrase we often use colloquially, so-and-so thinks they are the center of the universe. Oftentimes when I hear somebody say that or somebody else, um, I think they probably think that they themselves are the center of the universe. The truth is we all think we are a little bit, don't we, the center of the universe. To be fair, if you're a Japanese rugby player, you've every right to do so. And the point is that God is the center of the universe and not us. And uh, uh, the point is that humanity was created to, we all worship stuff. We just do. It might be a football team or a rugby team. It might be material possessions. It might be career. It might be a person. We all worship stuff. It might just be yourself. It's what we're good at as human beings. But God, if he is sovereign, did not create us to worship stuff, i.e. created stuff and ourselves. We were made to worship him. You may have uh, heard in a church service uh, somebody read what's called the, the catechism. Man, that means humanity, men and women's chief end is to worship God, to glorify God, and therefore to enjoy Him. That to enjoy addition is vitally important. Christianity is a joy-filled life. We did not create God, He created us, and therefore it is not glory to us in the highest, but glory to God in the highest. Or come, let us bow down and worship him, as a song in the Bible says. Stuff out there like uh, careers and material things and knowledge and all of that is great to pursue, but not to worship and not at the expense of worshiping the sovereign God. Now, these are the three points today. God alone is eternal, creator, sovereign. I want to finish up, though, with uh, the fourth on the sheet. God is amazingly gracious. The Bible is a story about God. We read verse 1. The Bible is a story about how God created the world, a true story. It begins with the creator God. It then continues with an account of how human beings have lived in God's world as if we made everything. One of the things I hope we'll see as we study Genesis is that its description of the world as it is that we know and the human heart as it is that we know is absolutely accurate. We have pushed God as humanity out of the world that he created. And what a mess we've made of it. And yet as the Bible's story continues, we read of God's amazing kindness and grace toward us, how God loved us so much, that he is determined to put it right. 
apparently Christmas cards are already in the shops. Don't despair. And at Christmas time, people up here like me will do everything within their power to, to wrestle Christianity out of the sentiment of the stable. Think of it like this. The God who created the world that we have pushed out of the world and put ourselves in his place came into this world in the person of the Son of God and was born in a stable in a manger. A manger in a stable, rather. And died on a cross. He gave his life that we might have life again. He died that we might live again. Now, that is an astonishing act of condescension and humility. God is amazingly gracious. Now, if you are a Christian, I hope you are encouraged again as you have thought about God our Creator. I hope you are encouraged in that through belief in Jesus Christ that you have been forgiven because you have and have life again because you have and have the hope of eternal life because you have. I hope that you are encouraged that in this vast universe you are not alone and that the God of eternity loves you and knows you and knows the number of hairs on your head and all the thoughts in your hearts even now. I hope that you are encouraged in that maybe there was a day when you thought it was too good to be true, but you got over the line and looked to the evidence of Jesus' life in a gospel and concluded that it is true. If you are not a Christian, whatever that means for you, let me say again how glad I am that you have come. Please keep coming back to this series. It will interest you. The subject of beginnings and origins and meaning to life do. Go along to the museum on Chambers Street and watch the film. And then read the Bible and compare the two. At the end of this talk, I said at the beginning that I don't expect to convince you that there is a God or even to believe in him. What I hope to do was to convince you that a Christian view of the world is plausible and that if it were true, it would be good that it were. If that is you, and you still have many questions, then keep coming, keep listening, keep asking your questions. And when somebody offers you the opportunity to read a gospel book like John one on one, take that opportunity and say yes or no on the basis of the evidence about Jesus Christ. Because it does matter. And surely it's logical that we see that. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the clarity with which the Bible begins. They are uh, strong uh, claims that are made, but they are clear to understand and we pray, Lord, that whether we are Christians or not yet Christians, we would listen and respond and engage with what your word says. 
Help us, Lord, if we have questions, to keep asking them and to find good answers and to conclude as to whether or not Christianity is true on the basis of the evidence of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And we pray that all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.